It's Friday, September the 9th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter, Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I can lay claim to that title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, check it for yourself. Go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary, then scroll over to where it says multimedia and up will pop a whole bevy of podcasts for you. You can follow, subscribe to any or all of them if you like. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcaster inbox each and every month. Hoover Podcast, just one aspect of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is Joe Felter. Joe is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the William J. Perry Fellow at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. From 2017 to 2019, Joe Felter served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Oceania. In that capacity, he was the principal advisor for all policy matters pertaining to development and implementation of defense strategies and plans in the region. As we're on the cusp of the 9-11 anniversary, I'd like to note that Colonel Joseph Felter served his nation with honor and distinction. He's a former Army Special Forces and a Foreign Affairs uh, Officer. His tours of duty, including a stint in Afghanistan, where he commanded the Commissaf Counterinsurgency Advisory and Assistance Team, reporting directly to General Stanley McChrystal, David Petraeus. Joe, thanks for your service, and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. I appreciate the opportunity. How do you remember 9-11? Where were you on September 11, 2001? Wow, this is embarrassing. I was asleep. Uh, I was living in Manila. It was about midnight. I'd gone to bed a bit early, and uh, I missed it in real time. And then my, my cell phone started ringing off off the off the charter, uh, and I woke up to just what looked like a you know a science fiction scene, like like we all saw. Uh, but I was living in the Philippines. I was a military attaché there, um, and uh, interestingly, uh, you know, I remember getting calls from uh, some of the. I was working with the uh, with one of the separatist groups in the Philippines, uh, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, who was negotiating with with the, the government of the Philippines for looking for some autonomous uh, relationships with the government. But uh, this this uh, you know Muslim uh, leader of of this this group I've been working with called me and, and wished sent, sent condolences, which I thought was a really uh, it was kind of a powerful gesture uh, given given uh, given the timing. But I was in the Philippines, and I think. Uh, uh, an appreciation that the that, that the threat that, that really manifested itself that day was was a global threat, um, and uh, uh, we we certainly saw in a response that, that that a response needed to be global in nature. And how many years had you been in the army at that point, and how did nine eleven change your career arc? Well, so this was when was that two thousand one? I, I was commissioned in nineteen eighty seven, so about about fourteen years. I was I was a major uh, special forces officer. Uh, uh, had spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. Uh, in special forces, and then and now as a military ship. But my career, I think it was just a reminder: you, you can never predict it. You know, we, we uh, you know, we, we early in my career, I was commissioned at the end of the Cold War, and we we arguably prevailed in that conflict you know, with, with with some help from some close allies and partners. But um, I think we knew that terrorism was a threat. But I, I think it was something that I, I would argue that it took literally about killing that many about that many Americans to really get our attention, really underscore that. You know, we saw like for example the bombings. That, you know, the 93 bombings of the World Trade Center, uh, the, the coal bombings, you know, the Cobar Tower bombings. We, we knew that there are terrorists out there trying to do us harm, but I think it took an attack of that magnitude to really uh, underscore that we needed to, you know, embark on this uh, response, you know, that this global war on terror, as President Bush termed it, which I think at the time was accurate. But changed my career like everyone. We, we very much were focusing on the war on terror. And I think I think now, as I we look at another topic, but, you know, developments with with Competitors like China, maybe that that focus uh, 
took our eye off of the ball and so some other threats that we're, we're now having to play, play catch up on. But but certainly we 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 all intently focus on combating terrorism. I made several deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, which we um, argued were part of that response. Um, it may be Afghanistan less so than Iraq. Right. Let's talk about another day in history, Joe, and that's August the 30th. August 30th, 2021 is the uh, the day that U.S. military planes left Kabul for the last time. We left that country after 20 years of involvement and in Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, I don't know if it's the nature of the beast, Joe, but August 30th went by without much fanfare. Certainly the Biden administration did not want to talk up this day. And I, did, I do think Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, announced some uh, honors and awards for those involved in the, uh, in the evacuation. But otherwise, it was not a ballyhoo day at the White House, certainly. This might be the nature of the beast, Joe, in this regard. April the 30th is the anniversary of Operation Frequent Wind, which is the evacuation of Saigon in 1975. So maybe we just don't like to commemorate what are not necessarily glorious days in American foreign policy. But I would like to put this question to you. Um, there could be a change of power in Washington come November, the elections. And let's say for the sake of argument, there is a Republican House. And the Republican House, Joe, they decide they want to start investigating things. And I imagine one of the first things in their crosshairs will be what happened uh, on August the 30th in Afghanistan. I'd like to get your advice for Congress on what they should do. What would be a thoughtful investigation of what happened? I mean, we know the political side of this. You want to gotcha people and say how they're unaware, unprepared, and so forth. The president was out of loot, maybe, blah, blah, blah. But if Congress were to really do an insightful investigation into what went wrong with regards to that evacuation, what road would you go down? Oh, thanks, Bill. And I, you say this date went, off, went by without any fanfare. I tell you, certainly within the the veteran community of the United States, the, those of us who, you know, it's it very personal, um, it did not go unnoticed. Um, this was not our not our brightest day. We don't mark it. We, we don't you know, we don't celebrate the anniversary of of of, of surrenders, uh, both Saigon or, or in Afghanistan. Uh, certainly multiple presidential administrations vowed to get us out of Afghanistan. Uh, certainly President Biden, President Trump and others. But. Uh, it, it's really the way we got out of Afghanistan. I think. I think is. I'll just say it, it's unconscionable. Uh, it, it was just America's better than this, and, and we have to be better than this. Uh, we left Afghanistan in a way that you know I was embarrassed as an American and distraught as a veteran who who saw so many of my. I know. I know a lot of people paid a big price for our time there. So um, it's it's a day we should remember and remember the service of of, of so many Americans and allies and partners and certainly Afghans that sacrificed so much. Uh, during that 20-year conflict. Um, but to back to your, to your 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 question on what should be investigated, you know, I think I think the public deserves to know the truth. I, I think uh, at the time it seemed to be really glossed over. I, I, I know I, I'm not, I wasn't in government or the Defense Department, but, you know, it's well publicized that um, some of our senior military leaders uh, advise strongly against how we departed. I think, you know, it's up to the president to say we're going to get out. And, and that's uh, certainly the prerogative of any sitting president. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly that President Trump vowed to do the same. But but the, the how we got out, I think, um, you know, there should be some accountability. It just did not have to be the debacle that it was. Um, this arbitrary deadline that was seemingly set and enforced and adhered to was exactly that. The, you know, the Taliban did not live up to their end of the bargain on, on the previous agreement. And there was there was no requirement for us to leave in, in such a state of chaos. We could have had a more deliberate plan. There's ways you you leave, uh, you you move, remove forces and non-combatants, you know, evacuate them in a more deliberate way, a more planful way. And, and you know, this has all come out in the news about the thoughts of well, why why did we surrender our our, our base in Bagram so early and, and and move you know this evacuation on the civilian airport in Kabul? But there, there's so many areas where we could have, should have, you know, <laughs> should have done much better. Um, and let's just 
let's take the, the decision to, to leave out of the equation. I, I, my personal opinion is, is that the, the force we had there was about right, given our national interest at stake. And I'm happy to go into more detail if you have some questions on that. But independent of the decision to get out, how we got out was was absolutely egregious the way it was executed. And, and I think this investigation should bring bring some accountability to, to those decisions that were made uh, that were suboptimal to sugarcoat it and, and, and ensure that if, if we're ever a situation where we have to you know, leave forces that we, we, we do it in a way that um, doesn't put so many people at risk, both our own forces, uh, Afghan people that, that sacrifice so much, put their own lives at risk and are still at risk now in Afghanistan. But I can go into more detail on that, Bill, I'll, I'll back to you. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about this, Joe. Uh, those Afghanis who still want to get out 53 weeks later, uh, 53 weeks after the U.S. left, what happens to those people inside Afghanistan who want to come to America, who want to escape the Taliban? We- it's really hard. For, first of all, they are at risk. They, they want to leave because yeah. uh, their support for the United States and the coalition puts themselves and their families at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a well-intended program, the special immigrant visas that was... They, <laughs> They were told they would they would be able to to apply for and receive for if, if they met certain criteria as far as length length of time serving for the Americans in the coalition. Uh, that that program was completely overwhelmed and, and it's now starting to come back a bit. But but they're they're at risk and many of them fled the country. Many of them are in safe houses around the country, which may be an oxymoron. It's it's just not safe for them and and they will forever be be hunted down and, and persecuted by by the Taliban regime for for. You know what what they consider crimes, uh, but which was supporting the United States. So they're having a hard time getting out. Uh, we we did get some out, but but tens of thousands of Afghans that we made a promise to uh, to them and their families in exchange for their service and support. Uh, we didn't honor that promise, and and some of them are paying with their lives. Uh, and but certainly they're they're going to live in fear as long as the Taliban's in charge. Yeah. Now, August the 30th did not go unnoticed by you. You wrote an op-ed for The Hill um, in which you uh, uh, penned the following line. I'd like to read it to you, Joe. Quote, America's longest war is not over and cannot be terminated unilaterally. Our enemies get a vote. What do you mean by that? Our enemies get a vote? Sure. This notion, and and again, I don't want to make this a partisan statement, but the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, cannot unilaterally end this war. Mm -hmm. Uh, This war against the extremists that brought us 9-11 uh, those our enemies are still out there trying to do us harm. Uh, they get a vote. They're going to continue to try to do us harm. Uh, and now that we have to prosecute this this war, if you will, uh, or address this threat from a much less advantageous position, so we can't say the war in Afghanistan is over. At least the war that we went in to fight. Now, I, to be fair, I would say the the broader you know this nation building effort we're bringing democracy and, and freedoms and a basket of goodness things to Afghanistan. We realized that was a bit of overstretch, you know, ten years ago, and we we drew down significantly since then. I, we, you know, when I when I last served there, we were you know, we were in it to win it. I, we 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 were population centric counterinsurgency. We had a hundred plus thousand Americans on the ground. We lost five hundred American soldiers dead uh, my, my, the last year I was deployed there. Um, that was twelve years ago. You know, uh, in the in the in the year uh, prior to our departure, fifteen months prior to departure, we had not suffered a single casualty. Um, and uh, we had 2,500 Americans and double that of our NATO forces. So we had, you know, basically just enough forces to keep the Afghan army in the field, the Air Force flying, and and, and the Afghan government, as, as corrupt as it was, in, in power. Um, so that comment I wrote that you just quoted, I would say, the war continues. Now we have to prosecute this counterterrorism using what we call over-the-horizon counterterrorism, which I would argue is kind of an oxymoron. You know, great, great credit to our intelligence service that, that brought, you know, that inner gave Ayman al-Zawahri, uh, um, you know, what he was asking for as far as becoming a martyr here last month. 
But the truth is, we are we are now trying to combat a terrorist that which is growing. Al Qaeda now has a a, re, a a new opportunity to reconstitute itself in Afghanistan, and we are we are launching these over the horizon counterterrorism missions from distant bases in the middle across the Middle East, and, and without the help of our allies and partners, which beforehand you know contributed significantly to that burden. Now it's one hundred percent American. It's it's costly. It's less effective. We've lost our intelligence networks. Um, it's going to be very difficult. So the war continues. We just have to fight it from a much less capable position than we had prior to the departure. Okay, you mentioned Al-Qaeda. Uh, Joe, if I have the math right, I believe the Taliban uh, gained control of most of Afghanistan in about 1996, which meant that five years later, with, Af- with Al-Qaeda training in Afghanistan, they were able to launch the 9-11 attack on America. To the synagogue there who's wondering if we're not going down the same track again, what would you say to the counter that five years from now, Al-Qaeda will again be in a position, thanks to what's happened in Afghanistan, to again launch a rather spectacular attack on us? Well, there's certainly growing in, in capability. They're certainly taking advantage of the conditions that a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan provides them. And there's been already, I mean, look at Ayman al-Zawari just living in downtown Kabul. I mean, it, for those uh, listeners, you know, he was you know, the head of al-Qaeda, you know, that was, right. was, was, was uh, you know, succeeded uh, Osama bin Laden. Living in broad daylight in, in downtown Kabul, uh, with full knowledge of the Taliban, um, and there's there's more where that came from. So I think you're exactly right, Bill. I think that you know we're going to see Al Qaeda reconstitute itself. And yes, there are other places in the world. It's not just Afghanistan, but they they find the conditions of Afghanistan particularly attractive. You know, what, what they saw in 1996, they're seeing you know, again now, and I think we're going to see that happening. And it's you know the thought of going back in Afghanistan, which may be you know at some level required. It's it's wow. Uh, that's that's just going to be a sad sad day when we have to recommit forces there because we don't have the choice. Uh, no no political leader can say the war's over if if there's a threat to a, the homeland emanating from Afghanistan in the form of international terrorism, then we have to address that threat. We can't just ignore it and just say that war is over. No, we've got to defend ourselves. And now we have to do it in, in from a, a, a position of of, of much less uh, you know a, a much weaker position. Yeah, Joe, Joe, if you look at the uh, elimination of House Warhiri, it is a remarkable surgical strike. And I emphasize that word surgical. The Washington Post had a pretty uh, pretty uh, detailed story on this. The CIA more than happy to talk about a well, successful mission here. And uh, it's really just compelling um, uh, reading. I, I encourage our listeners to check it out if they haven't already at the Washington Post. Uh, we apparently had intelligence on the ground, which knew his routines, which is what you do with terrorists. I guess you just follow their patterns, routines. We knew he'd be on a balcony at a certain time time in the morning, 618 in the morning, I think to be precise is when he was struck. Um, We also used a a missile. We used a a very surgical missile to go after him, which is more like a hand grenade. In other words, it didn't create an enormous explosion. We commit collateral damage was had one purpose really to take out this one very bad guy. Uh, So you see from this raid that we do have intelligence assets in Afghanistan and we are capable of doing things. But does that really root out terrorism, Joe? What I'm getting is you can commit yourself to death from above, I guess, as long as you want to, and you can fly a satellite over Afghanistan and see what looks like a training base and then drop bombs on it if you want to, and nobody will be directly harmed. You won't put boots on the ground. But can you really eradicate terrorism by just, just air campaigns and these surgical missile strikes? Yeah, it's really hard. You know, the, the key to effective counterterrorism is, is really intelligence. And, 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 and that's just one area that we just lost in Afghanistan. And again, Incredible credit to 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 those that, that planned and executed the raid that that uh, brought Simon Alzari to justice and 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 but but I would argue let, let's not um, be too let's not 
deduct too much from that, that very much success because right. we have lost our intelligence network. So there's technical collection means, and this is a sensitive topic that won't go into too much detail that, that we are able to maintain to some level. Um, but think about keeping, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles on station, you know, when, when we have to launch them from many hours flight away. Um, and, and, and this is another sensitive area, but the human intelligence network, this is really critical that it, those require constant maintenance and investment. And th those are, you know, largely deteriorated now and, and we won't be able to reconstitute them. And we've got some amazing people working in our, our government intelligence agencies that, that do their very best. But now that we're gone, we're very constrained on our ability to maintain the types of intelligence networks where you want to get you know, proactive and predictive uh, intelligence, you know, not, not real-time uh, feedback. That's important, but we're going to really have a hard time getting proactive and you know, getting the kind of intelligence we need to, 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 to plan uh, missions to, to 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 eliminate terrorists. So we're we're greatly constrained by by our departure of Afghanistan with our intelligence capabilities, and that's going to manifest itself in a much weaker counterterrorism capability. Um, so we'll see going forward. We're we're going to have a hard time interdicting the, these threats in the way we had in the past when we had some presence there with the 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 the, the more responsive uh, uh, assets like 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 our unmanned air vehicles and the intelligence networks. Is it possible, Joe, that the United States or the U.S. and allied forces would send troops, send forces into a foreign land if we were not struck first? Or is the is the, is the reaction the same as it would be in 2001? We have to be struck first before we strike somebody else. It's a great question. I mean, there, there is, a, you know, I think if there is a clear and present danger, if there's an imminent threat, if we, if we, we determine that we need to intervene uh, to, to prevent an attack, Certainly, I think that that is, you know, legal within the laws of war. It's, it's but it's tough politically because, you know, it, you know, information is uncertain. It's, you know, I, I would argue that it took 9-11. It took that attack. It took 4,000 dead Americans in New York and Washington and Pennsylvania to have the kind of response that, that we had, even though we saw it coming, even though we knew what Osama bin Laden was up to. And, and we, we, you know, there were earlier attacks that, that we, we could link to uh, terrorist groups in Afghanistan. But um, I think it, I think it takes an attack to really mobilize a response like we, we saw after 9-11. But maybe the experience of 9-11 is, you know, never again. Maybe we, if we see a threat uh, developing, we will interdict it proactively. But I, I think that's a pretty tough decision to make as, as for our political leadership. Well, you know what political leadership will say if uh, somebody suggests putting a sizable force into, let's say, Somalia, for example, to curtail terrorism there, someone's going to yell, no more forever wars. And yeah. is, that, is that, Joe, one of the legacies of Afghanistan and Iraq, forever wars? Well, I, you know, I think, I, I think sadly, ter terrorism is you know, like crime. It's not something you you eradicate. It's it's a threat you manage and you try to manage as effectively as you can. So maybe a forever war is, is a bit, you know, maybe that's overstating it, but I, I actually think it's pretty accurate. You know that this is. But, but you don't you don't call it forever war in the military, do you? I mean, no, that's, no, that's, that's no. The public right? term that this notion that you know we're not going to have a. a win this war and have a have a victory parade and, and you right. know this is not no one's going to kiss the nurse and declare a declare a victory i mean this is this is a this is a threat that's going to be there and right. we and, and we need to collectively maintain our vigilance uh, and we, let's right. let's hope it doesn't take another 9-11 or god forbid a, a, a even more catastrophic attack for us to realize that this is you know like i said earlier we may not think it's a war but there's those we have enemies that think they're still at war with the United States and are going to continue to prosecute this war and and, and reach out and try to do us harm and, and kill, kill Americans again if, if they are given the chance and opportunity. 
Right. But this is one of the conundrums with uh, the war on terror, Joe. It's not like 1941 where we can say we're going to fight the Japanese. We yeah. demand unconditional surrender and we'll fight them all the way to Tokyo if need be. You're fighting amorphous organizations. I mean, Al-Qaeda is a force, but it's not a nation. It's not a sovereign operation, if you will. So, you know, asking for the unconditional surrender of Al-Qaeda is not going to happen. So you're you're almost, if you will, like an elephant trying to stomp out ants in the field. And at some point, the question is, what is your what is your goal here? Is it a complete eradication of terrorism? At what point do depart? And this seems to me, Joe, to be one of the struggles we have in Afghanistan. At what point would we leave? Would we leave when we thought the nation was in stable hands? We would leave when we were just tired of being there. And you know, that to me is part of the confusion the public has right now, I think, in terms of the whole question of why did we go there and what did we achieve? Yeah, so I think the public appreciated, in, you know, in October of 2001, right? You know, with, with the literally the, the the twin towers still still smoldering, um, why we went to Afghanistan? We 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 traced the the you know the the threat to Afghanistan, the the, the instigators that brought us 9/11. So I think right. that was it, you know, going in there and 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 routing the Taliban uh, was something I think receive a lot of public support, but admittedly there, there was some, there was some drift, you know, we, now we were there and we said, maybe we could bring democracy and freedoms and, and all manner of, of good things to, to, to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and tr- maybe try to address the root causes that, that, that created the instability that, that brought us to terrorism. And I think everyone agrees while, while very well intended and while our time doing nation building as the term is brought a lot of goodness to it, to the Afghanistan, as far as you know, women's education and, um, health and, uh, you know, uh, so, so many in so many areas improved, but but that was not in our vital interest to, to bring democracy and freedom and a better uh, quality of life to the Afghans. Uh, to the Afghans. Um, but what remained in our vital interest was to protect the homeland for, from from a terrorist attack. And I, and I would argue that we went from 100,000 Americans at the high water mark in 2010 to 2,500 Americans in in in, in a. 20 which i think you put as like a fraction of the new york city police department yeah seven percent or less of the new york city police department and i would argue our 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 national interest at stake there merited that type of investment and and that small investment and you know, this is uh, general scott miller the last commander there uh, a, a friend and uh, just an extraordinary commander he did an amazing economy force uh prosecutor amazing economy force mission there with with that small presence and with and significantly with double that of our nato and other allies and partners was able to, and I mentioned this, was able to keep it together. You know, if you people commented on the, the how did the Afghan army collapse so fast? Well, they knew that if the U.S. left, that they had no chance. But with the U.S. there, with the combat enablers it was providing and keeping the aircraft flying, they could stay in the field. They could still prevail uh, against the Taliban uh, as far as defending the major population centers and keeping Kabul from falling and keeping the, the, the government, albeit corrupt, keep it from, from collapsing. Um, so I would argue that, and this is, and Though maybe I'm getting for, to a different question, but just want to make make sure I can emphasize this. I think the public was misled last year that somehow that we were fighting a war that was closer to what the war looked like in, in 2010. Again, when we had 100,000 Americans lost 500 dead, we had 2,500 Americans hadn't suffered a casualty in 15 months, and with that small presence, we were able to keep it together um, and keep keep the Afghan army in the field keep the Air Force flying, keep the government from collapsing. And I, I think I would argue that was worth it. And, and Bill, if I could shift a little bit more to another area, mm-hmm. yes, terrorism, that was the reason to win. But think about now in this era of great power competition. Think about now when we look at China and Russia as, as our competitors, especially China. Imagine having or deserting, as we did, Bagram Airfield, you know, a, a de facto U.S. NATO air base right. in, 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 in a country that, that bordered Iran, uh, Pakistan, China, 
was uh, bordered three former Soviet republics on, on Russia's southern flank. Imagine the strategic value of having an air base there. And I, and I would argue that, you know, our, our biggest strategic regret for leaving Afghanistan is, is, is yet to come. I think we'll realize that down the road, we'll say, wow, what if we had this airfield there so we could defend our, our national interests in, in the light of the, you know, this great power competition that we're in. And, and I, I guarantee you, you know, leaders like Xi Jinping and, and, and Vladimir Putin, they have a very different vision for the future of the region that's very inconsistent with ours. And, and, and our departure from Afghanistan is a precedent that they're not going to forget. Let's uh, shift topics here now, Joe, and let's go next door uh, from Afghanistan to Pakistan. News this week, the White House on Wednesday announcing a proposed $450 million arms package with Pakistan. This is to help that nation sustain its F-16 fleet so as to engage in counterterrorism. Joe, a uh, note coming out of the Pentagon, excuse me, the State Department on the same day, the State Department calling Pakistan, quote, an important counterterrorism partner, counterterrorism partner, let me repeat that, an important counterterrorism partner. Uh, that's an interesting term of phrase, an important counterism partner. <laughs> uh, well, I'm assuming that, you know, calling an important counterterrorism partner. Um, Bill, again, this is a little personal to me because I've served there and had a lot of friends that served there much, much longer. Right. Pakistan has been part of the problem uh, for, for many years. I mean, this is this is a country where Osama bin Laden was was hiding out in Abbottabad, you know, a pretty, pretty major Pakistan right. city. Who knows where accountability lies, whether it was the senior levels of government somewhere down in, you know, in the ISI, their intelligence service or in the military. But the fact is, you know, the Taliban had safe haven in Pakistan throughout our 20 years there. Um, right. You know, we would routinely see the, 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 the Taliban come across the border in the fighting season and then retreat across the border of Pakistan to, to, re, to rest, re, re, you know, rearm and, and get ready to fight us again. And we couldn't follow them there. Um, and we dumped billions of dollars into Pakistan and in, in, in counterterrorism assistance. And this is where I really give credit to the last administration. We're kind of holding Pakistan a little more accountable. You know, what, think about what were the, if you were getting paid billions of dollars of, of assistance for counterterrorism uh, during the height of the, the, the war in Afghanistan when Osama bin Laden was alive, what's your what's your incentive to to to, to kill the golden goose and get it get Osama bin Laden, for example? It's almost like you know, you're getting rewarded for having a, a problem with terrorism, with our terrorism assistance. So I think I think it'd be great if Pakistan could be this important counterterrorism partner that the administration described them. I think they're far from that. I think they're actually part, part of the problem at some level. And I'm not saying it's the accountability to the senior levels of government, but at the end of the day, uh, their, their intelligence, their ISI, and, and their, 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 in many levels, the, the Taliban are being accommodated and 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 giving them boosting this kind of security system to them and think of the signal that sends to our, our major defense partner india that you know that right. really has a tough relationship with, with with pakistan for reasons that you can certainly appreciate but i'll stop there and and, and and go any other direction you want no i'm curious to what message you think this sends by agreeing to do this deal with pakistan what message we send to the pakistanis but then we'll have to sit down and talk to the indians and what do we tell the indians yeah, I mean, I mean, Pakistan. You know, once we started to cut their assistance, they very disturbing drift towards China, which, which we we anticipated and saw happen. Um, but I got you know, in my previous job in the Defense Department, you know, I, when I got on board, then Secretary Mattis, I had you know, thirty plus countries in my portfolio across South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and the yeah. islands. And he said, he said, Joe, your priority, your three priority countries are India, India, and India. Uh, a little tongue in cheek, but uh, that is our, they're a major defense partner and our own director here at Hoover, Bill, you've, I've heard, you've heard uh, Dr. Rice, Condoleezza Rice say that the U.S.-India relationship is probably the most consequential relationship of this century, even more important than the U.S.-China relationship, because so much of our relationship with China is going to be defined by the quality of our relationship with India. 
anything we do to alienate India is not good for our interest. And not that we should be beholden to that, but I think how we treat Pakistan, really they're kind of arch, you know, they're nemesis, if you will, in many ways, um, for, for historical reasons, which most people are well aware of. That's a big loss to us. So, so I think uh, I, I think this huge uh, security assistance boost there is, is personally, I think that, that, that under, undermines, can potentially undermine the relationship with, with India and also, you know, reduces accountability for Pakistan and the, the, the fact they have been a very poor partner in counterterrorism over the last two decades. Okay. You have sons. Is this as simple as if you give your son a treat, do you have to now give your other son a treat because the other son's going to feel like he's not being treated as well? Does that mean we have to now go to the Indians and give the Indians something? Well, let's hope we do all we can to invest in that critical relationship and independent of what's going on in Pakistan. Right. Uh, but let's also hope we, we also appreciate that what we do in Pakistan has very strong impact on, on our relationship with, with India. And let's, let's weigh our national interests at stake accordingly and, and make sure we invest in the relationship that are, you know, are, are the most important. So, uh, but to be clear, we need to have a constructive relationship with Pakistan. It's, it's not like right. we need to cut them off, but let's, let's not reward belligerent. Let's not reward the kind of behavior that, you know, the exact behavior we don't want. And, and that is not being a reliable counterterrorism partner and, and, and acting in ways that, that threaten you know, their, our relationship with our most important uh, partner in the region, which is India. Yeah. Let's uh, shift gears to one last topic, Joe. Uh, you are a West Point graduate, correct? In a different millennia, Bill, but yes, I did go there. Uh, you know, um, Rob, Ulysses S. Grant, I think, had, had just graduated. And, uh, no. you, have, you have a you have how many sons at the point right now? Well, thanks for uh, asking, Bill. I got two two sons there, uh, a freshman, which we call Plebes. He, he just started in a, in a senior who will be graduated in June and is just, just real, real proud of, proud of both of them. So a question for you, Joe, when you attended West Point, what would you taught with regard to Vietnam and what are your sons going to be taught with regard to Afghanistan? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So I remember sitting in a class that was uh, on uh, arms control um, and you know, talking about this is this is the tail end of the Cold War. So I, I can date myself. Um, and uh, I had an instructor, this young major, David Petraeus, um, who was uh, we found out was busy writing his dissertation uh, at Princeton as well as being an instructor at West Point on lessons learned from Vietnam. And we were looking like major betrays. Come on, Vietnam, that's so 1975. You know, this is, right. we're, we're fighting the Russians in the full of the gap here. What, what are you doing? Boy, it's funny how, you know, our, you know, our own Jim Mattis at Hoover will tell you history has a way of kind of coming back at you. So um, I would say we, just like I said, I think to start off the conversation, you know, the, the war on terror or the, the, the threat that's posed by extremists like Al Qaeda continues and we can't just gloss it over and wish it away. So, so my sons, yes, we may be fighting. Gosh, no. So let's hope it's not a great power, uh, you know, in the field. Um, yeah. But we could certainly be redeployed uh, to, to, to address the, the terrorist threat that, that brought us 9-11 and certainly uh, plotting to do us harm, if not more harm in the future. It's interesting, Joe. If you look into West Point history, uh, the class of 1915 is the uh, the famous class, the class yeah. the stars fell on, they call it, because I think uh, 59 of 164 classmates uh, made general. That included five, two five-star generals, Eisenhower yeah. and Omar Bradley. Uh, that class went on to live uh, through not one but two world wars, Joe. Uh, but if you move into modern times, there was, uh, I believe the phrase was West Point Mafia that was used inside the Trump administration. You're smiling because I think you know this already. <laughs> this refers to the class of 1986. And included in that class would be Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, uh, a couple of uh, fellows most people don't know, Ulrich uh, Breckball and Brian 
Bellotto, uh, who also held senior State Department post. And then over in Congress, Mark Green, a congressman from Tennessee, who was on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. And I think, Joe, uh, he was involved in the interrogation of Saddam Hussein, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Fellow too, uh, but I mention this because if you graduated from the 1986 class, uh, West Point, Joe, you've been through several engagements yourself. You've been through a Desert Storm in Kuwait. You've been through Iraq. You've been in Afghanistan. This is another class that's being shaped by war. But I'm curious to what the outlook of the class of 1986 would be in terms of warfare moving forward. Yeah. Well, Bill, thanks for the the chance to associate myself with class of 86. I was a year behind them, but I certainly have a lot of friends in that class and. Uh, I know all the individuals you just mentioned and, and then some, but it, it is an extraordinary class. But I, I would say, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm not entirely objective here because, you know, having been a graduate there with two sons there, I would just say West Point is, is it, it, at the heart, it, it it graduates leaders of character and, and public servants. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that we see graduates of West Point and certainly all the service academies uh, aspire to serve in government in, the, in those positions of responsibility. So but but yeah, a lot of, a, a, an uncanny number of the class of '86 were serving last administration. But there's some just fantastic folks. Uh, um, there, there's some in this administration for my class, uh, John, John T. and the Deputy Secretary of DHS, I, actually, and, and, and a couple others. Um, but I, I don't want to veer off from your question, uh, Bill. But maybe steer me back into the more pointed question. But I, I do think that. Well, the question, would, the question would be this, Joe, your class, the class of 86, the class of 87, your attitudes in terms of going to war and winning wars versus what your sons will be experiencing when they are commissioned, when they come out of West Point. Yeah. In other words, is there any kind of hangover effect that you worry about based on the Afghanistan experience? Well, you know, winning matters. Uh, we're seeing, look, look at Ukraine right now. The reason we're seeing any chance for negotiations or, or any settlement short of complete capitulation of Ukraine is because of the extraordinary performance of the Ukraine military and on the battlefield. And, and fortunately with, with some support from the international community. But I think we, we should never lose sight of the fact that, you know, there's a saying that, you know, states make war and war makes states. I mean, it, at the end of the day, the victor gets to, to decide what happens. And Sadly, I don't think humankind is going to evolve. I mean, I, this, this this notion that we can evolve past that is 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 just naive to think. So, that warfare is, is is a state of the human condition, and, and winning wars, that those that win get to get to decide how to carve things up. So let's hope that we never lose sight. And, and at the end of the day, you know, people go to West Point be, to, to lead our, our men and women uh, in in combat to make sure that we're prepared to fight wars. Ideally, to, to, to deter them, but. Should we have to fight them that we win them decisively and, and, and we get to decide the outcome? So the hangover effect, I think, looking at Afghanistan, I, let's not sugarcoat. That was a surrender, Bill. We surrendered in Afghanistan. I, I, it sounds a little harsh, but I, I, from my perspective, I think we surrendered. We, we left and the, the country, the government capitulated and, and an enemy government took over. We surrendered. Was, um, it, was, it, was it worse than Saigon, Joe? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I... I uh, I am old enough to remember that. My dad served a couple of tours in Vietnam. Um, I personally think, I mean, maybe it's a little closer to me. So, so I would say I, it was worse, but but uh, maybe I won't comment on that. I would say but both were very sad days for the United States. You have the images of people dangling from helicopters versus the <laughs> image of people dangling from C-17s. Yeah, or yeah, falling off of them. You know, right. uh, it's just horrific. So I think similar in many ways. It was it was a, it was a it was a image of, of America that that none of us were proud of that that we you know this uh, the, the real damage bill I think is is you know the impact this is going to have on 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 our credibility on 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 our reputation as a reliable partner around the world I mean if, if you look at every fight we go into going forward is going to have to uh, America's biggest 
resource is, is our network of alliance and partners. I mean, if you look at our this great power competition looks pretty grim if it's the US and China head to head, but if it's the US and all of our allies and partners pulling together to 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 try to you know aspire towards a, a shared vision for the future against China, then we're looking pretty good. But right now, can you imagine if you're one of our close allies and partners after seeing the precedent that's set in Afghanistan? Are you going to be a little skeptical of, of our commitment and our staying power uh, and our reliability going forward? I think so. I think that's going to be a, a, a long and enduring um, memory for, for allies and partners. And I think we've, we've invested enough in other areas where we can get through this, but it's certainly going to hurt us. And, and we need to, we're, we're better than this and we need to be better than this. Yeah. Final question, Joe. So 9-11 is on Sunday. Um, it, uh, I assume there'll be commemorations at the, uh, the, the sites of the attack, the World Trade Center uh, in Pennsylvania at the Pentagon. Uh, if one of the two New York football teams is at home, the NFL starts on Sunday, maybe they will um, have a moment of commemoration. But most people will not remember 9-11, will maybe not stop to reflect. But if you could offer people some advice on what exactly they should be thinking about in 9-11, what would it be? <clears throat> well, I'll admit it's, it's, it's even hard for me to talk about this. Um, then there are people around the world that want to do us harm and they're actively plotting to do us harm. And it's thanks to the amazing efforts of our law enforcement, our, our intelligence community and our military. Uh, we haven't had a catastrophic attack since 9-11, a terrorist attack, but boy, it can happen any day. Um, we need to maintain vigilance. <clears throat> I think we certainly need to honor, uh, all those that, that died on 9-11, uh, most especially the first responders that that literally just charged into those burning towers. I mean, just extraordinary heroism. And uh, it's been 20 years, but I tell you, there's not a day that um, those families don't think about their loved ones who perished, and we shouldn't forget them either. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's this emotional topic for me, though, if you can't tell. But I would say let's let's not forget those those heroes from from 9/11, and let's not forget those those enemies that that showed us their true colors on 9/11, and let's maintain vigilance and make sure we invest in our law enforcement, our first responders, our intelligence community and our military, make sure that we we deter as best we can and we maintain the capabilities to respond as best we can, let less, you know, less we have to suffer something like that or worse again. Okay. Well, Dr. Joseph Filter, Colonel Joseph Filter, thanks again for your time. Thanks for your service. Thanks for all you do for the Hoover Institution. And please give your best to your two sons over at West Point. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for the chance to join you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Joe Felter is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is surprise, surprise, at Joe Felter, spelled J-O-E-F-E-L-T-R, at Joe Felter. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. It's uh, hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. Joe is the best work of Joe Felter and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. We'll be talking to Andrew Roberts about Queen Elizabeth. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.